In Revelation chapter 17, John sees a vision of a woman riding a scarlet-colored beast. But what does this vision represent? Today we will learn the truth about who this woman is, and we will begin to unravel the mystery behind Mystery Babylon. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host on this wonderful day. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and so I hope that you have a relationship with him, a true relationship, not just one based on religion, but one based on the heart and based on faith and repentance and trust, because we are in those final days. We're in the end times, and certainly if you've been with me through this series, and even for myself just doing this series, it's only confirmed to me just how how true that is, that we are living in the end times. In the Now, we've been in the final days since the cross, but we are really at the 11th hour. And again, I don't know when Christ will return. Nobody knows for the exact time. But if you read the writing on the wall, and if again, if you've been with me through this series, uh, it's very obvious that we're in those final moments, in those final times. So without further ado, today we're going into some deep stuff. So make sure you subscribe uh, it, do it so on my website, danceoflife.com, because again, you never know what these platforms, especially YouTube. Um, I don't know, you know, they just, they like to be trigger happy. So you just never know. I, I have emails probably once or twice a week, so nothing too crazy, but it's a great way for us to t- keep in touch. That's not dependent upon these platforms. So today we are going into a deep study on mystery Babylon in chapter 17 of the book of revelation. Now, if you've been with me so far, Last episode, we had an overview of the beasts of Daniel and Revelation. Remember, beasts that are in Daniel and Revelation, Revelation builds off of Daniel. They're very interrelated. John builds off of a lot of the things that Daniel talks about, and that's why we did a whole chat. We did a whole um, episode on all of these books and chapters on a on a general overview because I wanted you to see that it's the same theme. You can get very lost in all these different beasts and systems and, and interpretations because really, at the end of the day, it's the same Antichrist power. It's Babylon. And if you recall from the uh, chapter we did last time, we looked at how basically there's this consistent pattern from Daniel chapter 2 where he receives this vision of a, a statue of an image that deteriorates over time. And the head of gold is Babylon, and it deteriorates over these various empires and kingdoms that happen all the way to the return of Christ, which is at the very end, and it destroys this system once and for all. There's no more iterations after the return of Christ. And after that, we saw how the the various visions of the beasts that Daniel receives in Daniel 7, in Daniel 8, with the two, with the ram and the goat and the little horn, and also later in other chapters as well, you, you see these parallels of, of the little horn, for example, the little horn in Daniel 7 and the little horn in Daniel 8. They're the same little horn. It's the same power, but you have certain details in each chapter that, that you have to piece together. It's not all one chapter with every single detail. And that's really the case with all of these prophecies. And we saw how the beasts are kingdoms. They're powers. Like the iron, the terrible beast, the fourth beast, coincided with the thighs of iron on the statue. And supposedly, you know, the the, the beast that has, not supposedly because that's what it says in the text, it has 
iron teeth, I believe bronze claws, but it's this terrible beast. And we know that Rome perfected the use of iron. It perfected the use of iron through torture, through warfare, through all kinds of things. It was a very terrible beast. It was a terrible empire. It was probably one of the most brutal empires that ever existed, especially with their perfection of torture and crucifixion. And so all these things align to paint a consistent picture of the progression of empires, of these antichrist empires, which is really just one system, all the way into this little horn power that that dominates the people and dominates the world for 1260 years. And that little horn power, which is in Daniel 8, Daniel 7, it's a power that is reflected in John's book when he talks about the first beast from the sea. If you recall, the first beast from the sea that John sees rules for 1260 years. Now that coincides perfectly with the timestamp for the little horn power. Another thing that coincides is that the, the beast that John sees has aspects of all the previous empires that Daniel saw. If you remember, Daniel saw a lion, he saw a bear, he saw a leopard, right? And what John saw in his first beast that ruled for 1260 years is a conglomerate. It had, you know, teeth like a lion. I forget the exact body parts, but, you know, paws like a bear. It had different parts of these different animals. Now, the animals that John saw are the exact same animals that Daniel saw. So, you tell me, what is that just a different thing, or is there something more to this where John is picking up what Daniel left behind? And the answer is obvious. John is picking up where Daniel left behind. He's filling everybody in. John's book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And so, it's giving us the full picture until the end of time. It's giving us a little more detail on where Daniel was really kind of big picture, right? 1260 years is a long time. And especially afterward, what happens afterward? Well, John tells us through the first beast who appeared to have a mortal wound. And we're going to talk about this a little more today with history, but you had this mortal wound that happened. And then there's a second beast that arose from the earth, which is an unpopulated area, who basically makes the world worship the first beast somehow. We haven't gotten to that yet. We're going to talk about the image of the beast and all these things in a future episode shortly in the next couple weeks. But we're building the case for it today. And the next week, we're going to really, really dive deep into the teachings of the papacy, the Catholic Church, Mystery Babylon, which if you haven't guessed, that's what we're talking about today. Who is Mystery Babylon and who is this beast system that John sees. It's the final beast that he sees in Revelation 17. Now, we haven't gotten there yet, but it's important to understand where we're going because we are going through the through the book of Revelation and we're very much through a lot of it. <laughs> we're, a lot we're a lot through the, the trumpets. We haven't gotten to the trumpets. Those will be at a different episode. Uh, the various seals, we've been through most of them. We've been through most of history. That's another reason why Again, if you check out the End Times Prophetic Timeline that I have as a free resource for this series, you can download it. It's just in the links uh, provided in the description for this episode, wherever you happen to be listening or watching it. But it's a free Google Sheet, and you can see all these things visually laid out. And and you can also see a little arrow that says, you are here in our current time. Now, at the time of this video is 2023. This is when I made this timeline. But 
ultimately, if you look behind that arrow, most of these prophecies have been fulfilled. Now, I'm not a preterist. That means, you know, that things, everything's in the past. We don't have to worry about it. I mean that a lot of Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. Now, there's still some left to go, like the woman riding the beast in Revelation 17, which is what we're covering today. But again, it's that understanding that, wow, we really are in the 11th hour here. So understanding who this woman is, is very important because a lot of people's eyes, especially through dispensationalism, are watching Israel. What's happening in Israel? What about the third temple? What about the false messiah they have, the Yanaka guy, Yanaka Rav Shlomo? Uh, you know, is King Bibi going to be the Ben David messiah and this Yanaka guy is going to be the Ben Joseph? I mean, there, there are so many poor interpretations of what's happening in the world because a lot of people have been deceived by dispensationalist thinking. Now, again, I don't have time to review all of this stuff every single episode, but I'll give you a brief rundown. Dispensationalism is a result of the counter-reformation. If it's one thing that you get out of this entire series, I don't know how many episodes this is going to be. Maybe it's going to be 25, maybe it's going to be 30, but over 30 hours of study. If you get anything out of this entire series. It's to realize that the dispensationalist way of reading the Bible, which is very fleshly, very worldly, very physical, very literal, it was all made by the Jesuits in the Counter-Reformation. The Reformation identified the Catholic Church and the papacy as the Antichrist power on the earth, and it is. Now, that was a problem because the Reformation was a grassroots movement. You can't stop a grassroots movement movement with force and tyranny because it's just going to spread like wildfire. So what did they do? They changed their tactics. The, the papacy was ruling with an iron fist for 1260 years. So they changed their tactics and they developed the counter grassroots movement through the counter reformation, the Jesuits. And part of that was re changing, changing, I should say, or reshaping how people see the end times so that the attention is not on the Catholic Church, not on beasts and systems and political powers, but on literal individuals, like the two witnesses. We talked about how the two witnesses are the Word of God. They're, they're, it's a metaphor. It's a spiritual reality. It's not two, real, two literal people that are going to be in Jerusalem in the end times prophesying for, for whatever, and then they're going to be uh, killed, and then they're going to be dead for three days. I mean, this is this is a fleshly, physical way of reading the Bible. And it blinds you to the truth of what's actually happening. People are so obsessed with what's happening in Israel that the chosen people and God's prophetic timepiece and all this stuff, I mean, this is nonsense. The chosen people stopped being a chosen people almost 2,000 years ago. After Stephen got stoned, remember, this, it all starts with Daniel's 70 weeks. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy ended AD 34. And that's when the gospel went out to the nations. That's when Peter had his dream. That's when Paul was converted. That's when Stephen was stoned and then everybody was dispersed. The time for the chosen people had ended. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we went into it in many, many episodes. But the point is this. Don't be fooled by dispensationalism, by a pre-tribulation rapture, by a 1,000-year literal reign that Jesus is going to be reigning on earth to put his enemies under his feet. All of this is being choreographed to make people believe that that false interpretation of the scripture, which was started by the Jesuits, is coming true. Now, the danger of this is that 
Satan may masquerade as Jesus Christ. And if people believe that he has to rule in Jerusalem for 2,000 years or 1,000 years, that we've entered this golden age, then people will worship and won't even realize it and be deceived, take the mark, whatever it's going to be. That's one possible avenue with this. The other possible avenue is that all of these dialectics and things, and we'll talk more about these in the future because I have a lot of episodes dedicated to this idea that I'm about to share with you in much greater depth. But I've mentioned this before, which is the dialectic between good and bad, light and dark, left and right, Islam and, and Judaism, you know, communism. And all, there's all these dialectics that are all coming to a head to ultimately create a situation where the Pope is the ultimate bridge maker, Pontifex Maximus. That means the one that's building the bridges, the the great bridge builder, the great peacemaker, the bringer of light, who is really the vicar of Satan and Lucifer, who brings their light in their world. All the occult people are worshiping Satan as their savior. And so if you understand this stuff, all these things are very clear what they're doing. So you can't be fooled. Don't be fooled. But in this episode, we're going to look at this future reality, which is a near future reality. It is the final iteration of all of these systems. And John saw a woman riding the beast. Now, this represents a church-state union. And why does it represent a church-state union? It's because a woman has always represented the body of believers, the church. In the Old Testament, it represented Israel as the body of believers. And in the New Testament, it represents the church. And a good chapter for that is actually Revelation 12, where it talks about the woman who delivered the Messiah. Now, the woman in this case is not the Virgin Mary, like the Catholics believe. But the woman in Revelation 12 is the church. It's Israel. It's the the body of believers. It's always been one body of believers. But in this case, if we want to go literally with this, it's the body of believers of the Old Testament. It's Israel that delivered the Messiah. But then the woman runs away from the dragon for 1260 years. Remember, days are years. They're not literal days. There's not a dragon chasing a woman for, you know, three and a half years. It's 1260 years, which coincides with the 1260 year period of the little horn, the first beast, the two witnesses. All these things are happening over a period of 1260 years. Well, what happened during 1260 years? That was the time of the papacy from 538 AD to 1798. And the point I was trying to make is that the woman in Revelation 12, before the Messiah, is the same woman after the Messiah. It's the body of believers. So now if you have a woman who's a prostitute, a harlot, that is riding a beast, a beast that is very reminiscent, as you'll soon see, of all these other beasts we've talked about, especially the first beast, you have a woman, which is a church, that rides or controls a political system. And that political system is the union of church and state. And we know that the second beast that John saw, the one that comes from the earth, the false prophet, that basically fools people and deceives them into worshiping the first beast, the one that had the mortal wound. That beast, the second beast, creates an image, gets people to create an image of the first beast. Now, an image means a statue. It's a representation. Now, of course, in Visions, everything is symbolic. So if a beast is a kingdom or a political power, and it is getting people to create an image of another political power or a kingdom, a previous kingdom, 
what's really happening here. Again, we'll talk about this in the future because there's a whole episode dedicated to the image of, actually there's going to be two episodes dedicated to the image of the beast, but the image is a representation. So it's going to be a representation of a government that used to exist. And what existed for 1260 years? Well, absolute church control over all things. That happened from 321 AD all the way through 1798. Constantine, we'll get into some of this history today, but Constantine is the one who married church and state. And that system, a political, religio-political system, existed for a very long time. It was a very, very prolific system. It persecuted people, crusades, inquisition, indulgences, banning the Bible, all kinds of stuff. So that's the system that's coming back. That's going to be ultimately what the image of the beast represents. It's this political system, and that's what John sees in Revelation 17. So the question is, how is this even possible if Today, in America, at least, we pride ourselves on separation of church and state. You see so many countries in Europe, oh my gosh, they're secular. They don't even really have religion, it seems like. It seems like secularism has really taken over the world. Well, if you, it's, it seems that way, doesn't it? And that's the whole point. If you remember my episode on the French Revolution and the art of war, if you don't, go check it out. But we talked about how the French Revolution began this dialectic between left and right between atheism and secularism and conservatism and, you know, traditional values, religion. And that system of dialectics of left versus right, right, you know, red versus blue, up and down, dark versus light, all these things, that system is what gave birth to America and the, and the values of America and many other places in, in France and Italy and Germany and, and all these different countries in Europe basically adopted this dialectic of left versus right. And you had communism that came out of that. You had basically the whole Russian revolution that turned Russia communist. And then you had World War II, where basically Hitler was a light side occultist and he was fighting against the, the dark side. And obviously the dark side won. Now, I'm not saying anybody's a good guy. I'm just saying this is what happened in World War II. You had two sides of the occult fighting, as always. And the dark side won. The communists won. The left side won. And now you are seeing a reversal. Now you're seeing a reversal where all this dark side stuff, transsexualism, you know, pedophilia, human trafficking, communism, globalism, the Great Reset versus the Great Awakening, all these things are on purpose. They're in your face. The deep state, right? The deep state versus whatever, sovereign nations, nationalism. All these things are on purpose to push people back to the right. The last hundred years of communism and atheism and secularism are coming to a head. They have served their purpose in pushing people so hard that now they will beg for the unification of church and state. This is what we're moving towards. It is all by design. It's by design. And again, if you, if you, this is the first time you're hearing this and it sounds too fantastical to be true, I really encourage you to stick with me because we're starting to get into it today. But as we go in the next few weeks, we're going to get into it very, very concisely and deeply in a very detailed way through, through history, through all kinds of things and evidence that you'll see. And as usual, I'll cite all my sources. But the point is this. People are now moving into the light, quote unquote, the light, the false light of Lucifer. You know, the capstone on the dollar bill with the pyramid and the one eye and everything, that's the whole 
point. These two paths of the occult, they lead to the same crown in the in the Kabbalah tree that all these people worship. It's it's two sides of the same snake. They lead into the same destination, which is a one world order. Now that one world order is not going to be the Great Reset. The Great Reset is the big bag the big bad boogeyman that they're putting in front of you so that you revolt and you want nationalism, that you want Christian values again. And who's going to be there with their arms open wide to guide the world back into morality and light and peace? It's going to be the Catholic Church. It's going to be the Pope. It's going to be the one world religion and spiritual authority, which is the beast that was and then was not because it had a mortal wound in 1798 and then is again. And people will marvel after the beast. So this is the future that awaits us. But you're not going to see it if you're always after Israel, 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 and being deceived by dispensationalism. So today we're going to look at Revelation 17. We're going to break this down. We looked at it last time, but we we need to do it justice in this episode to go a little deeper. And we're going to look at some history in the last 2,000 years. And of course, next episode is when we'll dive deep into the teachings of Catholicism over the years and why exactly it is the Antichrist power. There's no power in history that even comes close. And unfortunately, many people think that Mystery Babylon is America or who knows what else. I mean, there's so many theories these days because people have gone away from their basics. You don't need to know everything about the end times. You really don't. And in fact, I don't think we can. I certainly don't. I certainly don't try to know everything. But my goal with the series has always been to to share with you enough so that you aren't fooled. Because once you know some things, then you can reject things easily that aren't true. So, let's go to Revelation 17. Okay, so this is the great prostitute and the beast. Verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 11. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Remember that from all the previous beasts in Daniel and John. The woman has... The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup of gold, a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. That's a good detail. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So, 
we still have a little, still a little bit to go, but I want to take a pause here really quick. A couple things. Remember the parallels with the fourth beast that Daniel saw, the terrible beast of iron with 10 horns. Remember that? Remember how the first beast that saw that John saw, the one that had seven heads and 10 horns, that had all the conglomerates of the previous beast that Daniel had, that ruled for 1260 years. Again, the, the first beast of the sea that John saw, the seven heads, 10 horns, and the conglomerate of all the other beasts, that is the little horn power that Daniel saw. But Daniel just saw like a little horn, and, and he had some details that are important, but he, he still had the bigger picture. It's John that has other details that he adds to it with the two witnesses, the woman uh, running away from the dragon for 1260 years. It's, again, painting this picture of persecution. The Dark Ages, where the Catholic Church, the, the papacy was ruling with an iron fist for 1260 years, were a very terrible time. And that was the first beast that basically ruled longer than all the other beasts. It was a very long empire in that sense. Again, remember all the parallels with the first statue that Daniel saw in Daniel 2, and the, the, the progression of these various Antichrist systems, Babylonian systems. Pontifex Maximus is a Babylonian title, by the way. That's the Pope's Latin name. And I believe it's still his Twitter handle, but I haven't checked. I don't really use Twitter. Nevertheless, you have these parallels with all these different systems. A woman we know is a type for the church. So a woman riding this beast is a unification of church and state. Now, we know that the beast seemed to have the first beast that came out of the sea, which again is the little horn powers, the papacy, 1260 years. It seemed to have a mortal wound. Now, why did that happen? That's because in 1798, Berthier, which was one of Napoleon's generals, arrested the Pope and declared the papacy to come to an end. That was unheard of. Imagine after 1260 years of ruling Europe and then the world, basically with an iron fist, that suddenly the papacy was declared to be at an end. Well, if a beast is a kingdom and a political power, if the Pope is arrested and the papacy is declared to be at an end, that's a mortal wound. But it seemed like it had a mortal wound because it really didn't come to an end. And again, if you study the art of war and you study the French Revolution, like in the previous episodes that we looked at, that was all by design. It was to create a dialectic between left and right so that people would want the beast back. It had to change tactics. Remember, the Reformation really put a, a wrench into things because it was a grassroots movement. And so they changed tactics, ultimately. They changed tactics and created basically this mortal wound, a di then a dialectic, then they used secret societies. All these things happened around that time, and they were designed to bring the beast back into the power that it enjoyed. For 1260 years as the complete as the complete sovereign authority over everything and that's that's where we're headed so the kings of the earth we know they're going to give power to this beast in the near future now we haven't gotten there yet in fact we'll read some of the verses in just a second but a couple of details that are important in revelation 17 5 in verse 5 her name is mystery babylon mother of abominations on the earth. Now we know from 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13 a very telling thing. He says, "She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son." Now he's talking about Mark 
And we know that he didn't have an actual son named Mark, but his son, you know, you, when you have a, a child in the faith, somebody that you're, like Paul had with Timothy, right? It's a, it's a child, it's a son in the faith. Now, this is very important, because when he's talking, to she, she who is at Babylon, well, what is Peter talking about here? Like actual Babylon? Babylon wasn't around anymore. But spiritually it was around. So what is he talking about? Well, we know he's talking about Rome. And he's not saying Rome because he's trying to protect the Christians there. And he's trying to, you know, everything had to be very censored in a way. So so a lot of times you had basically talking in code, in spiritual code, because the Romans wouldn't really understand what's Babylon. Well, Babylon is Rome. And we know that from Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. And we know this. Aristarchus, this is Paul writing now, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Mark and Aristarchus were prisoners. They're basically with Paul when he was writing Colossians. Now, we know that Paul was writing from Rome, these letters. And so if Mark is with Paul in Rome, now we go back to Peter, and Peter says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So Mark is in Rome, and he sends greetings, so we know that Mark is in Babylon, i.e., quote-unquote Babylon, meaning Rome was seen as Babylon by Peter. That's a very important, very important detail. And we know also the name Mystery Babylon is mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, and of course... There's a very good reason for that, and we're going to expand upon that reason over and over in the ensuing chapters of this series. Today, we're not going to do it so much, but consider a couple things, okay? First and foremost, Catholics created Islam, and I intend to back that up, and created communism through the French Revolution. They created a New Age movement, progressive Christianity, the New Thought movement. All these things are influenced one way or another by the Catholic Church or the Jesuits, in some way. Now, we know also that the Catholic Church has said that she is the mother church, which is a very interesting statement. If we look up a nice little article here, in the Independence, says, other churches are no sister sisters of ours, the Vatican insists. The Vatican has decreed that the Catholic Church is the mother of all churches and banned the term sister churches to describe other denominations in two new documents that could harm Vatican efforts toward unity with other believers. The Vatican has decreed that the, ch- the Catholic Church is the mother of all churches and ban... Okay, this is just repeats it over, but here we go. This is what I want to read. <clears throat> Let me just get this ad out of the way. Sorry, guys. In a letter to Bishop Worldwide on Saturday, Pope John Paul II, Chief of Theological Advisor Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, said it was incorrect to call Christian churches ranging from Protestant to Orthodox sister churches of the Catholic Church. The Cardinal said the term was sloppy terminology and could not be used to describe Christian communities that were not actually in communion with Rome. It must always be clear that the one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church is not the sister, but the mother of all the churches, the Cardinal said. And so it's evident that it would go against the faith to consider the Catholic Church as one way of salvation alongside those represented by other religions. So there's a lot here that points to the fact that, yes, the Catholic Church is the mother of abominations on the earth. Now, we know that a lot of churches splintered off from the Catholic Church 
And if you look today at the charismatic movement, if you look at the progressive Christian movement, if you look at, you know, the Pentecostal movement, and of course, I'm not saying everybody in these movements is bad or evil or anything. I'm, I'm talking about the actual movements themselves and what their purpose has. We're going to look at these in a future episode where how the charismatic movement is actually created by the Catholic Church. And it's indeed, it's necessary for them, for their ecumenical efforts to bring everybody back to the Mother Church. Because you can't unite around doctrine. And they know that. That's why they're always avoiding doctrine, because doctrine is the truth. Christ, if you believe in transubstantiation, and if you believe that it's not true, you can't unite around doctrine. Because one person believes that you have to eat Christ's body and blood and, and drink it every Sunday and re-sacrifice him every Sunday in order to be saved, and one person rejects that idea. You can't have unity around that idea. But if you can have unity around experiences and these charismatic Holy Spirit experiences, which most of them are not guided by the Holy Spirit, it's a false spirit that's invaded the church and people's lives, and I'll be documenting that as well. But it's a false spirit. But they can unite around a common experience. You see how this works? So the charismatic movement is definitely caused by the Catholic Church, and is designed to bring people back to the Mother Church. And you will see that Protestants are asking for ecumenism now. Everybody wants unity. Let's, let's not divide over doctrine. Let's not be so divisive. Let's all have unity. We all worship the same God, right? All the, all the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, which even again, Islam was created by Catholic Church. I'll be documenting. I have a whole episode dedicated to that. Muhammad was surrounded by Catholics. He got funding for Catholics because the original Christians that were in the Middle East were a real problem for the Catholic Church, a real problem for Rome. They couldn't be controlled, so they had to create an army, and that army went out of control, and now it's going to come back, too. The whole Virgin Mary thing is being used to unite Islam back into the Mother Church. Gosh, it sounds so crazy when you hear it. If you've never heard this before, it sounds probably totally crazy, but I intend to back it up. But anyway, it's the mother of abominations on the earth. And it's so interesting that Peter acknowledged Rome as Babylon. Mystery Babylon is what Revelation 17 says. We know that the woman sits on seven hills. There's only two places in the world that, has, that can claim that title. We know Rome has seven hills and the Vatican sits on seven hills. The only other place that could possibly be a match is Istanbul. And Istanbul used to be Constantinople, where basically Constantine started the unification of church and state, where this whole beast system, the little horn power, started to arise. Now, it didn't fully arise after, until in the 500 AD area, because it had to pull up three kings before. We'll get into that in just a second. But it started to arise, this whole beast system of a basically a, the papacy, the religio-political power. And so you have mother of abominations. The, the Catholic Church prides itself on being the mother of all the churches, right? Now, there's a lot of apostate churches and, and crazy churches out there. Those are harlots. So mother of harlots is very accurate. Peter believed that Rome was Babylon, John sees this as mystery Babylon and sitting on seven hills. So it's obviously talking about the apostate church that's a that's sitting on seven hills and it's Rome. There's no other organization or political power in history that fulfills that other than the Vatican and the papacy. 
Now, you also have these um, kings, these European rulers, or basically these kings, that are basically consistent with Daniel's ten toes and his statue. Remember, the, the Babylonian system eventually goes through these various empires until it's iron mixed with clay in the toes, and there's ten, ten toes. Now, we know that Rome basically split off into ten nations once it fell apart as an empire. And those ten nations are what basically created the eventual European nations, the European Union, NATO, the World Economic Forum, all these, you know, the United Nations, all these globalist entities that have tried to intermix constantly and, you know, it's it's failed, but they've, they've been trying. I mean, the, the United Nations building, I believe, was based on the Tower of Babel architecture. And they did that intentionally. So imagine what is that, if you have discernment, what does that say to you? What does that say to you in relation to all these things we're reading about Mystery Babylon and One World system that's coming. Every time they've tried to create a one world system, God has judged them, and we are close to that time. So the one world system will happen. It's not going to be for a long, long time, but it will happen. And then judgment will come upon them. But let's read Revelation 17, 12 through 18 now. This is the second half of that chapter. So we just talked about the beast that was and is not is an eighth and he belongs to seven and it goes to destruction. So the beast that was and is not, meaning the papacy that was and then it is not, it received a mortal wound, it seemed like it did, it's also part of this system. That's what it's saying. Verse 12, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. We haven't gotten there yet but it is on the horizon. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for, the, for he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. That's why the, the second beast that John saw that came out of the earth is from an unpopulated area. The only world power in history that ever came out of an unpopulated area in at least around the time of the first beast, is America. And we'll get into that in a future episode. Verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Gosh, what great city has dominion over the kings of the earth? Well, it's the Vatican. It's its own sovereign little city. It's tiny little kingdom, and yet it has dominion over the kings of the earth. The Pope is always meeting with everybody around town. He's meeting from people with both sides of the aisle. He, he's always everywhere with politics. Isn't that interesting for a religious leader? But a couple of things. So Daniel, we know Daniel's statue de-evolves into ten... Ten toes at the feet, obviously. And it's iron mixed with clay, and they're, they're trying to basically, you know, intermix and, and do something, but it doesn't work. So I want to pull up a, an article here really quick for you. Rome into ten parts, division of the West. Beginning the early parts of the fourth century, the emperors of Rome were already aware of the increasing weakness of the Western Roman Empire. By 330 AD, Constantine decided to move the capital of his empire to Byzantium. 
which was located in the east portion of the empire, which is basically Constantinople, or Istanbul today, which also has seven hills. History is so interesting. While the empire was divided into the east and west, it still functioned as one. Invasions of the Western Roman Empire. Slowly, the western portion of the Roman Empire was breaking up because of frequent invasions and lack of control by its rulers. When Odoacer became the new ruler in 476 AD, Anglo-Saxon invaders established a German kingdom in England by, on the other hand, other tribes founded their own kingdoms in other parts of the empire with Visigoths settling in Spain, Vandals settling in North Africa, and the Franks in Gaul, and the Ostrogoths in, Itali- in the Italian peninsula. With the death of Attila the Hun in 5, 453 AD, the Ostrogoths were finally free from these Mongolian invaders. This also gave them an opportunity to settle within the empire to the south and west a part of the Danube. Theodoric became their ruler, and he led the march heading to the Eastern Roman Empire. The ruler of the Roman Empire in the east attempted to stop the Ostrogoths from entering his lands, so he encouraged Theodoric to divert his attention to invading Italy instead. The Roman Empire also suggested that the Ostrogoths should overthrow Odoacer, who has been Italy's ruler since 476. Theodoric succeeded in his plans for invading Italy and defeated Odoacer in 493 AD. Thus he became the king of, the, of Italy while establishing a capital at Ravenna. During his reign, he was able to provide peace and prosperity to Italy. However, civil strife resumed when he died in 526 AD. Justinian, a Roman emperor, regained Italy in the 6th century and managed to maintain its progress for a few years. And Justinian was the one who basically ended up officiating the entry of the papacy as the world power. Now, let's keep reading. The Division of Western Rome. The Western Roman Empire was divided into ten parts. Gosh, there's that number again, ten, by 351 to 476 AD, where it is located on the Bible timeline poster. So this is a nice little poster you can get, but with world history. This era in the history of the Roman Empire lasted for about 125 years, which was from the middle part of the 4th century and up until the last quarter of the 5th century. The groups that held Roman territories and former and formed their own kingdoms included the Franks, Huns, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Heruli, Lombards, Anglo-Saxons, Suevi, Vandals, and Burgundians. Each of the kingdoms established were independent from each other, unlike the method followed by the Roman Empire. And so you have these ten kingdoms that were basically established as according to the statue prophecy, where you had, again, the iron, the last, the thighs were of iron, or the legs were of iron, and then the feet became iron mixed with clay. So it's this degrading system that is post-Roman, has the Roman aspects of it, but is degrading. That is layer one. Layer two is what we see with the beasts in Daniel, where you had the fourth beast of iron, Rome, and then out of that beast comes this little horn. Now that little horn plucks up three other kings in its process of coming up, and we'll look at how that's fulfilled in these ten nations. Three of those empires, that I, or the nations that I just mentioned, the Heruli, the Visigoths, and I forget which the third one was, but either way, there's three of them that got basically removed before the papacy was instituted as the dominating power. And this is all history. It's all very fascinating. And of course, you have John's vision, which kind of layers on top of that too, the first beast from the sea, which is this conglomerate power 
that has Babylonian characteristics, has Greek characteristics, Roman characteristics, Persian characteristics. It's this whole conglomerate system, which is what the papacy was. It's a neo-pagan, post-Roman power. I mean, if you look at the Vatican, it's got obelisks and Greco-Roman architecture, and nothing much has changed. It's just a final iteration. But I want to read another article about intermarriage and this whole idea of iron mixed with clay. The Divided Kingdoms of Daniel 2. Okay, unity through marriage. The nations of Europe have also endeavored to unite through alliances and marriages. Ferdinand II of Aragon married Isabella of Castile, uniting their two territories into Spain. Napoleon divorced Josephine to marry Marie-Louise of Austria. Queen Victoria, often called the Grandmother of Europe, arranged the international marriages of of her 51 children and grandchildren. None of these marriages have succeeded in producing unity. Isn't that interesting? Just like iron mixed with clay, they will try to marry, but they will fail, just like the Bible says. And whereas thou saw iron mixed with clay, this is the verse from Daniel 2, verse 43, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. There have been and will be temporary political and economic unions in Europe, but these unions have not succeeded in in welding the nations into one. So, again, the Bible is true, and the ten kingdoms that we see from multiple angles, you see them from Daniel's statue vision, from his four beasts with the ten horns, you see again the the beast with the ten horns in uh, John, And then finally, in Revelation 17, you see the woman riding the beast with ten horns. It's all the same stuff. It's relating to this post-Roman system of these nations trying to unite. And at the very end, we saw that the kings of the earth will give their power to the beast for a short while. Now, that hour may be, again, if we're using the day-to-year principle, that hour would be about two weeks. Or it may just be an hour in the sense of a period of time. I'm inclined to believe it's more in a period of time. And what we're told is that they're going to be convinced to fight against the return of Christ, fight against Jesus. And of course, they're going to lose. And because of that, they're going to turn on the beast, on the on the woman, I should say, and burn her with fire. Now, we know that the punishment for the daughter of a high priest caught in fornication was to be burnt. If you were a daughter of just a normal person and you were caught in fornication, you were going to be stoned. But isn't that interesting how the daughter of the high priest, if she was caught in fornication, she would be burned. Now, who's the high priest? That's Jesus. And of course, as daughters, we are the church, right, in some sense. And so I think it's very interesting and fitting that the punishment for the harlot caught in fornication, the daughter of the high priest. You should have been true and faithful, and yet you were a harlot and a prostitute, so you're going to be burned. And so it's very interesting how all these things, again, keep pointing to the same reality. The harlot riding the beast is the church. It's a church entity. And of course, we only know, or say we know that there's only one church on earth that sits on seven hills, and that's the Catholic church. But there's an article on this idea of 10 world kingdoms. And I want to go down to it here for a second. Here we go. The new world order is birthed. On on September 17th, 1973, the Club of Rome published a highly confidential report called The Regionalized and Adaptive Model of the Global World System. Mihalio Mesarovic and Edward Pestel. 
probably the authors, which was sent to the power elite of the world to be implemented. The document reveals that the club was divided or has divided the world into 10 political economic regions, which it refers to as the kingdoms or horns in our study passage. Of course, they're talking about the same thing. The Club of Rome during the early 1970s launched the framework for the coming one world government, which is now in full swing under the guise of Agenda 2030. Carbon credits, global warming initiatives, New Age Earth-centric worship, and ecumenism, spearheaded by the World Economic Forum, closely monitored by the Vatican and her minions. And so the point of this is, look, there's a map here. And again, if you're listening to this, just look up 10 economic kingdoms on Google Image Search. You can find this map. Basically, you have America and Canada as one kingdom. South America is another one. You've got Africa, basically three different kingdoms. Europe is one of the kingdoms. So you have 10 world kingdoms. Now, isn't that interesting that in their way of doing things, they split the the world into 10 economic kingdoms. So now the 10 kingdoms, the 10 kings that will give their power to the beast at the very end, we haven't gotten there yet. That's probably what this refers to, which is basically a worldwide deception by the the papacy, the, the Vatican, for the world to give its power to the harlot so that the harlot can ride the beast. Riding something is a sign of mastery. And we know that basically throughout this whole series, we've seen that the papacy was a power that was unique in the sense that it didn't have its own military. It sort of just controlled politically and spiritually without a military, not by his own power is what Daniel says. And so this is very much the image of the woman riding the beast. The beast is obviously the more dangerous one, but yet the woman is riding the beast and it's making... The beast, she is her, the master over the beast. And so this is what's going to happen. The kings of the earth will give their power to the beast. Now, when it says the ten kings, I don't think it's talking about the ten European nations. I think it's talking about the world, the entire world. And it's so interesting how this Club of Rome document reveals that the entire world is divided into ten kingdoms in their mind. So, very interesting. Now, we also know that, again, the Pope is meeting with leaders from both sides of the aisle constantly. So whether you're left or... This is how you know and see through this dialectic nonsense of left versus right, right, you know, red versus blue, dark versus light. It's, you know, at the end of the day, it's all designed to come to a head and pay tribute to Satan. And of course, we know that the Pope is the representative of the Antichrist power on the earth. And if you see both sides of the aisle meeting with the Pope, they're always wearing black, he's wearing white. Why is that? Because, well... He's the light bearer. He's the one that brings light. You have to make him look good. You're not allowed to wear white or any other color when you're seeing the Pope. Everybody who sees the Pope, no matter who they are, this is the fascinating thing, who they are, they have to wear black. They're always wearing black. And so you got to pay attention to these things because they're very interesting. Now, we know that uh, Benedict the 16th, where's my article here, says that the time of the Antichrist is upon us. In 2015, Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI wrote a letter to Catholic statesman Vladimir Polko urging prayer against the expanding power of the Antichrist. Isn't that so funny? I mean, I just think this article is hilarious because ultimately it's one of those things where they're telling it to you in plain sight. You know, of course, the, the expanding power of the Antichrist, he's not lying. But people think it's about some individual that's going to walk into a physical temple and claim himself to be God. That already happened with the papacy. 
The temple is a spiritual reality. It's the church. And the Pope, the papacy, the little horn power has walked into that temple and claimed itself to be God, to forgive sins, to give out indulgences, to rewrite the, the times and the laws, to change God's laws, to teach blasphemous things like transubstantiation, praying for the dead, you know, all these all these crazy things. Again, we'll get into it next time, but he's not wrong. Pope Benedict was not wrong. The time of the Antichrist is expanding. I just think it's funny that this is something that would be said, but again, they like to give it to you on the surface where you think it means something, but they to them it means something else. They give it to you in plain sight. And now we know today also there's ecumenism, a one-world religion through the Abrahamic family house and climate change gospel, the the push to unify churches and, and faiths into one cohesive spiritual religion. And of course, there's a lot of things involved with that. There's, you know, earth worship, new age movement, progressive Christianity, dropping dogma, but uniting around experience. All these things are moving into one spiritual paradigm. And it's going to be a spiritual paradigm where either Satan will be masquerading as the son of God, or the papacy will be basically the the, the chief authority of this new system where everybody will gladly want a unification of church and state. And again, if you've heard this, if this is the first time you're hearing it, it sounds crazy, stick with me because it's not going to sound so crazy, hopefully, in a couple of episodes. But again, the wound was in 1798. We'll get, we'll review this in a second, but the wound was in 1798 when the Pope was arrested by Berthier, who was Napoleon's general. And we'll see when the wound was healed. There was an actual, it's so interesting. Again, Bible prophecy is so fascinating. The wound was healed in 1929, in the 1920s, through something called the Lateran Pact, which we'll get to. But the spiritual wound, meaning the return of this system back to its former glory as the ultimate sovereign political power, political and religious power, that is happening very slowly. And it's happening through all these diverse dialectics that are happening that I just mentioned. Ecumenism with Protestants wanting to go back to the mother church. Climate change and all of us, you know, let's care about the environment. Let's unify around the world and let's make 10 climate commandments. And the Abrahamic family house. And we're all, you know, we all believe in the same God. All this stuff is happening slowly and slowly to heal the wound spiritually. It was healed politically in the 1920s. Again, we'll cover that. But spiritually, it's not completely healed. And that's when the kings of the earth, and again, kings of the earth means the entire earth's authorities, political authorities, will give their power to the harlot. That's when that's when all of this will be healed politically and spiritually. When it heals spiritually, that's when the woman is, the church, is going to ride the beast. And that's the final system. People think that we're, fighting against the deep state and, and the deep state's losing and we're, we're coming out of it and in, into the light, into this glorious, prosperous system with a quantum financial system and, oh my goodness, so much nonsense. You know, you want to hope that there are good people in the world who are in power and who want your best interests in mind, but there is no such thing. I certainly was deceived on this too. There are no white hats. There's no good people. The white hats, who wears a white hat? The Pope wears a white hat. Who wears the black hats? The Jesuits. If you know the art of war, if you listen to my episode on the French Revolution, 
you'll understand what, what the phrase white hats and black hats means, or dark hats, whatever. It's just two sides of the, the occult. We're not moving into victory. We're moving into the final iteration of the Luciferian system, which is going to fool a lot of people because all this push against the big bad deep state and globalism and the World Economic Forum and communism, it's by design to push you into the light. And when the light comes, you're going to think there's victory and we've won and we've made it. When in reality, we're in the final system that's preparing everybody for the mark of the beast. And they're going to take it gladly because they think we're in the golden age. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the final days, people will be drinking and marrying just like they were in Noah because they took the mark of the beast. They're going to be doing great, of course. But if you're not going to do that, then you will not be able to buy and sell and you'll be ostracized from society. But unfortunately, not too many people realize these things because they think that the dark that they're seeing right now is the final enemy. It's not. The final enemy is not the obvious one. Satan is not wearing a big red cape and he's got a pitchfork and fiery horns. Satan is an angel of light. He's a beautiful being that God created. So beautiful he fell in love with himself and he's full of hatred for anybody else. So you have to remember that. And that's the future we're moving into with all this dark versus light stuff, moving into a light world order. It's going to be, it's going to look like a golden age. It's going to look like we're back into good old values, good old, you know, traditional values. We've conquered evil, but it's going to be actually the most evil in history. And if you don't participate in that system, then you will be persecuted. Remember these dialectics. Remember, again, the Bible says 16 times, do not move to the left or to the right. I think there's something there and why it says that. Even Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12 says, says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads to death. So there's always a way that seems right and it's good. But if we don't have biblical discernment, then it leads to death. So where are we in Revelation? We are before this system takes shape. We are before the period of time where the kings of the earth will give their power to the to the system, to the papacy and creating basically a one world religio-political system. Now in Revelation 12 through chapter 17 verses 12 through 18, the section that we just read, it says that the kings of the earth will give their power for an hour and basically again be punished because they're going to fight against Christ, they're going to lose. And so it's, they're going to turn on the system at the very end. This will be part of the judgment of that system. Just as God used all the previous empires to judge every other empire, he used Persia to judge Babylon, he used Greece to judge Persia, and so on, it's going to self-destruct and be judged in the end as well. Now, who are the seven kings? In Revelation 17, verse 9 through 11, we read, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. We identify that as uh, Rome. Rome is the city of seven hills. And of course, Istanbul also applies. But these heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, he, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So the beast is going to be part of these succession of kings or rulers, 
and it's going to die also. So the question is, who are these seven kings? And, and the answer is this. I don't really have a, I have three possible answers and we're going to go through them. I'm not particularly attached to any of them. I, I, to, I tend to lean towards one of them, but the point is this. I don't think you should be dogmatic about who these kings are because in the end, they all point to the same answer. <laughs> Just like the abomination of desolation pointed to the papacy, just like the daily that we had in the previous episode, we looked at the daily in Daniel, that points to the papacy. Just like Mystery Babylon, Rome, Seven Hills, all points to the same. It's all the same power. So that's really what matters, is that you identify who the real Antichrist power is. Don't get lost with trying to appropriate history and you know some of these details because it's really easy to get lost. However, these three possibilities all center around what do you interpret as who the king is that now is? So again, it says, verse 10, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is. So one is. The other has not yet come. So the question is, who is that one is? Is that one is talking about John's current time where he's living during Rome? Is that what he's talking about? Or is this talking about in the future, the time of the vision? where one is, meaning the present king, is a is a future king in the vision that he saw. This is where the dividing line is. And again, I don't think we need to be dogmatic about it, but the three possibilities are as follows. The first possibility where the now is, the, the king that now is, is during the time of John. And the other two are talking about the future. So if that's the case, this is the simplest way to look at it. The, they were basically the principal powers who persecuted God's people throughout time. Five have fallen, which were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. One that now is, is Rome, because that was basically the persecuting power during, uh, during John's time, when he had revelation. One is yet to come, is the papacy. And then you have the eighth, which is the beast, which is the final church-state union, and again, it arises, but then it goes to destruction. So basically accounts for every iteration of the system. Now, again, just like most things in end times, like we looked at the very first episode of this entire series, with all these different views of the end times, the, the views expressed here, each one has a problem or several problems. And so that's why, again, you can't be too dogmatic. I tend to lean towards this first one because it's the simplest, but there are problems with this view too. The question is, the first problem is, which powers do you leave out? There's a lot of powers mentioned in the Old Testament that persecuted God's people, like the Philistines. That was a, that was a power that they had to deal with. So that's a, that's a question mark. Another problem is when it says one is yet to come. Now in this model, again, the one that's yet to come is the papacy because the now is was Rome. Remember, John was writing around 70 A.D., there's different debates about when he was writing, but he was during Rome. And so if Rome is the now is, then the yet to come is the papacy. That's that's the little horn power. But in the text, it says he has to continue for a short while. But the papacy continued for 1260 years. So that doesn't necessarily make sense. Now, again, it's not doesn't completely rule it out, but it is kind of strange that it says that the one that's yet to come will continue for a short space even though the one that's yet to come continued for 1260 years. So that's a problem with this first view. Nevertheless, 
I think it's pretty simple. And again, it points to the papacy as the iteration of this system. This is really what we want to get in our heads. The papacy is the Antichrist power. It's moving towards a final church state union. The second possibility is, again, these last two have to do with the, the now is king, the who, who's king now is in the future for John, which for us was more contemporary. But basically, this second possibility uses the time of the vision being in the future. It looks at Daniel's beasts uh, and statue as a time frame. So five have fallen would be Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, just like the beasts that we talked about. The one that's now is, again, for John, that would be future. For us, it's contemporary, would be the wounded papacy, which is what we're in right now. The papacy is still kind of wounded. I mean, the, the wound healed politically in the 1920s. We'll look at that. But spiritually, it's not fully healed, meaning it's not in control of everything yet. The one that's yet to come is the final church-state union, which is the woman riding the beast in Revelation 17. Now, the problem with this view is that there's no place for the eighth beast. So remember, if there's five have fallen, one now is, and another is yet to come. But then you also have the beast that's mentioned as the eighth. And so this is a problem because this this way of looking at things doesn't account for the, the beast as the eighth one. So where do you put the beast? The wounded papacy is also not specifically outlined as a beast or as a system. It's only the little horn that's outlined. The little horn is outlined for 1260 years. Then John kind of expands on that with his with his first beast from the sea that comes out of the sea and it has this conglomerate look from all the previous beasts, which the papacy had. It's, it's a Greco-Roman pagan system. And it ruled for 1260 years and it had a mortal wound. It seemed like it had a mortal wound. And so that's mentioned, but it doesn't mention like a continuation after the mortal wound into this Revelation 17 system. Now, you could say that that's what the image of the beast is, maybe, that the that the second beast that John saw, the, the false prophet, you could say that that's the image of the beast that he makes. I don't know. It's not, it's not super tight of an explanation. Again, we know that the wound healed politically in 1929 with the Lateran Pact. So, it's only been about 131 years since... 1798, when the wound happened, when the Pope was arrested. So if we are in, if we're counting, here's the point. If we're counting the wound healing politically as when the wound healed, and this possibility that I just mentioned, the now is king is the wounded papacy, then that has already been expired. We're kind of now in this limbo state where nobody is king, right? Because now is was done. The wound healed, if the wounded papacy was basically between 1798 and 1929, then there is no more wounded papacy. The wound healed. Now, of course, we're looking at that politically, not spiritually. And so we're in limbo right now. This is a problem that this perspective can't really fit that into it. So this is also kind of flawed in some sense. But again, it points to the papacy as the power. It points to the wounded papacy. It points to the final religious system that's coming. It, it all points to the same thing. Now, the third possibility and the final one is kind of similar to the previous. Again, the now is his future. Five have fallen, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. One now is, who's basically the seemingly wounded papacy, which if you remember, when the, when the papacy was wounded, everything went underground. Secret societies were formed. 
Freemasons, Illuminati, all these different things happened around that time. And that's how all these world events and dialectics have been controlled since then. And it's coming back into a worldwide integrated system of spiritual political dominance. We're not there yet, but the now is king would be the seemingly wounded papacy slash shadow government slash secret society slash Jesuits, all these different things that are basically happening that we are in right now. Now, the yet-to-come king would be the image of the beast, which is the religion, the the unification of religio-political union, a Christian nationalist system that's heading our way. Now, it's going to probably start in the United States and have a great reason for that. I'm not going to mention that here because, again, there's a whole two episodes dedicated to this. It's a lot of material to discuss, but basically I think that's going to start here and it's going to move throughout the whole world. And then the eighth beast is accounted for in this view, which is basically the final the final woman riding the beast, the, the consummation of this system, where the entire world is basically worshiping the beast and paying homage to the beast, and the kings of the earth have given their power to the beast. And so you have some distinction in this one, and it accounts for all of them. Um, you know, this one's good too. A lot of people lean to this one as well. But here's the point. It doesn't really matter because they all point to the same thing. All roads lead to Rome. Don't forget that. They truly do lead to Rome. The final system will be a union of spirituality and politics. How that's going to look, who knows, but we have some ideas. Now, we are in between the mortal wound, 1798, and that final system. The mortal wound healed in 1929, and we'll look at all the history leading up to that in just a second. But it's not healed spiritually yet. The, the papacy is still in the background. It's He's kind of just doing his thing and people aren't super aware that that's, that's right in the limelight. But it's everywhere. And I intend to prove that to you because there's so many things happening that are unifying people and seducing them and bringing them back to the mother church where, again, it will enjoy the glory that it had for 1260 years. Now, it's not going to be that long of a period. It'll be much shorter, thank God. But nevertheless, it will be back in that former glory to some extent. So, let's talk about the history of the beast. So, in 313 AD, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and that was by Constantine. Now, that eventually led to a church-state union. In 323 AD, you had the first Sunday law, and this is where I've talked about the Sabbath, how it changed. Again, times and laws. Every king and every empire has always changed times and laws. They always had their own calendar. They always had their own laws. So the book of Daniel, when it says that the little horn power is going to change times and laws, it's not talking about the obvious stuff that people do when they take power. It's talking about God's law and God's time. The papacy basically has created its own calendar. First off, the Gregorian calendar is because of Pope Gregory. They change the Ten Commandments. They change the Sabbath. They have their own, you know, uh, feast calendar with Advent and Lent and all these things. And they've basically supplanted, you know, God had his own calendar that the people celebrated various feasts as a reminder of Jesus. That was the whole point. But now the, the Catholic Church has created its own basically sacrificial system with its own calendar, its own days and times, its own rules and laws. It is, it has changed times and laws, but that started in the 4th century with Constantine. 
And the first Sunday law was in 323 AD. And that's when the calendar was officially made into basically the the seven-day week, which is what happened with Constantine. Saturday became the seventh day, and Sunday became the first day, the day of the sun. And that's why worshiping on Sunday is as the day of rest. Let me put it that way. Because you can, you can worship God any day of the week. It's it's resting on Sunday that is the, the law that was changed. Sunday is not the Sabbath. And that will play a, a role, possibly, I believe, in this mark of the beast end time situation, because it will be a matter of worship. When do you worship? When do you worship the beast? And the beast has always been worshipped on Sunday because it's the day of the sun. More on that in a future episode. But let's talk about Constantine for a second. So I want to pull up a document here called The Application of the Third Note of a True Development Assistive Simulative Power. This is a chapter in a book called uh, Development of Christian Doctrine by John Henry Newman. It's on page 372, and it's a pretty academic type of document, but I want you to listen to this. We are told in various ways by Eusebius that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the, to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own, meaning he married paganism to Christianity. It is not necessary to go into a subject with which the diligence of Protestant writers has made familiar to most of us. The use of temples and these dedicated to particular saints and ornamented on occasions with branches of trees, incense, lamps, and candles, votive offerings on recovery from illness, holy water, asylums, holy days, and seasons, use of calendars, processions, blessings on the fields, sacerdotal vestments, the, the tonsure, the ring in marriage, turning to the east, images at a later date, perhaps the ecclesiastical chant and the Kyrie eleison are all of pagan origin and sanctified by their adoption into the church. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And now we also know that Constantine had this battle, this famous battle where he had this supernatural experience I want you to learn about, which is called the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Probably not too many people know about it. I didn't know about it either until I found out about it. The Battle of Milvian Bridge took place between the Roman emperors Constantine and Maxentius on 28 October 312. It takes its name from the Milvinian Bridge, an important route over the Tiber. Constantine won the battle and started on the path and let, that led him to end the Tetrarchy and become the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. Maxentius drowned in the Tiber during the battle. His body was later taken from the river and decapitated, and his head was paraded through the streets of Rome on the day following the battle before being taken to Africa. According to Christian chronicles, Eusebius of Caesarea and Lactantius, the battle marked the beginning of Constantine's conversion to Christianity. So this is a pretty important battle that we should understand kind of what happened here. Why did it mark his conversion to Christianity? Eusebius of Caesarea recounts that Constantine and his soldiers had a vision sent by the Christian God. Interesting. Wonder what the nature of this vision was. This was interpreted as a promise of victory if the sign of the Chiro which is basically this X, if you don't know what that is, it's a sign with a P over an X across over it. The first two letters of Christ's name in Greek was painted on the soldier's shields. Does that sound like a vision from God to you? That's interesting. The Arch of Constantine, erected in celebration of the victory, certainly attributes Constantine's success to divine intervention. However, the monument does not display any overtly Christian symbolism. 
So Constantine had this vision, supposedly, that if he were to put these characters, the Chiro, on the shields of his soldiers, that he would have victory. And if he won, of course. And that sort of began his quest to unify church and state. Very interesting life that Constantine led. Let's look at another source. This is called The Religion of Constantine. And this is from a book, The Two Republics, I believe. But either way, there's something in here I wanted you to check out. Okay, here we go. Accordingly, now his coins bore on the one side the letters of the name of Christ, on the other the figure of the sun god. Interesting. And the inscription Sol Invictus, the inconquerable sun, as if he could not bear to relinquish the patronage of the bright luminary, which represented to him as to Augustus and to Julian, his own guardian deity. So, so Constantine had these coins with one side, he had basically the, the letters of the name of Christ with his chiro, but then on the other side, he had an image of the sun god. So which god was he really worshiping? And, and were the second century Christians who said basically that they were afraid that in the end times, Satan would masquerade as Jesus Christ, as basically the son of God, that there would be a false Christ. Even Jesus warned us about this, that there'd be many false Christs. But if they're is going to be one, and they tell you, look, he's over here, don't go. It's not me. We're going to meet Jesus in the air. That's what the Bible says. Now, it doesn't mean there's a rapture. It just means we're going to meet him in the air when he finally arrives. So, look at how all this started. Constantine had a supernatural vision. Some sort of thing happened to him. He won, and that vision was guiding him to do something worldly, to put a symbol on shields. And then he put the symbol on a coin with the sun god, and he started to fuse church and state. Now, do you think that God wanted him to do that, to basically have this materialistic, fleshly system? I don't think so. I don't think the Christian God gave him that vision. Because obviously from the fruits of his work, he wasn't being guided. He was being guided by another power, by another spirit. And it's very clear who that spirit is, because... We know that Satan came down to earth after he was bound, he lost his power at the cross, and he changed his tactic. So instead of being overt with all these pagan systems, he created his own version of Christianity. He created the Judas version. Remember, the son of perdition is only used for Judas and then for some representative of the Antichrist system. And there's no better candidate for that than the Pope as the Judas, the one who's part of the flock, but in the end he is the the one who gives Christ the, the kiss of betrayal. So the devil created his own counterfeit Christian religion. And that started with Constantine. And obviously, Constantine was being led by a false spirit. Now, I want to jump to a book called The 20 Centuries of Christianity, A Concise History. This is page 58. And this says the following, and you have to kind of zoom in a little bit, but it says the new Christians were, so far as thinking and habits went, the same old pagans. Their desire for baptism was strictly prudential. So it wasn't about being born again. It was really just about going through the motions. Their surge into the churches did not mean that Christianity had wiped out paganism. On the contrary, hordes of baptized pagans meant that paganism had diluted the moral energies of the organized Christian of organized Christianity to the point of social in, impotence. 
St. Jerome and St. Augustine both deplored the corruption of the Christian community by the modern influx of the unconverted. So you had, as a result of all these efforts by Constantine, an influx of pagans into Christianity, which started to, again, dilute the system and prepare the way for this final system, which is when the papacy took over in 538, only like 100 and some years after Constantine, 160 years or 200 years, whatever it was. Now, another article called Baptized Paganism, also very interesting. I want to read this section for you. There's a whole, this is a, all these are very good sources, but I just want to pick something out. Notice this statement from Worry's Church History, page 24. Indeed, we shall find that when Christianity became the established religion of the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism, that it assumed in great degree the forms and titles of paganism and participated in no small measure of its spirit. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed, without much improper impropriety of language, baptized paganism. So this is from another book called Wari's Church History. But what is the point here? Well, the point is this. The point is that the original Christian religion, which was really just a way of life, it was a lifestyle, it was a relationship with Jesus. The Christians were persecuted like crazy the first two centuries. But as that started to dwindle down, Satan saw that he had to switch his tactic. He had to create his own religion because it wasn't working. These people were having endurance. They were having perseverance. Christianity was still growing. And so he had to change his tactic and dilute people and deceive them and allow them into the church and create his own false religion. And that's what you had with Constantine. Again, Constantine had this supernatural vision that was guiding him to do certain things. And the more you look into it, you realize that that wasn't from God. Again, you judge people by their works and their fruits. Well, the fruits of Constantine were basically fusing paganism with Christianity. He didn't care if he had Christ on one side of the coin. Now, he didn't even have a picture of Christ. It was just the name of Christ in Greek, the Chiro, and the sun God on the other. So you have to be lacking some serious discernment if you think that the Spirit of God is leading you to create such a blasphemous thing, really, and to teach people in those ways. And eventually it just led to this hodgepodge religion. Now, I'm not saying Christianity today or Christianity in general is like that, but I'm saying this is the history of the Catholic Church. This is the mystery Babylon, how it began and where it's going. So we have to understand all this history so we can see what the final outcome is. And when you really take a look at all this history, you aren't so surprised by the reality that there will be a unification of church and state on the near horizon. So, this was all in the early 4th century, from around 313 AD to 320-something AD, 325. But the point is this. A couple centuries later, in 476 AD, the Ten Kingdoms of Rome were established. We read that previously. From 476 AD to 538 AD, you had those three... Remember, there was ten na- nation-states that were basically turned into the Rome. Rome turned into ten, ten nation-states. And three of those powers basically were removed before the papacy took power in 530 AD, fulfilling the prophecy in Daniel that the little horn that comes out of the fourth beast will remove three kings. Now, those three kings were the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths. And we can take a look at a nice article for that. This is actually an article titled 
uh, Journal of Inter... It's the 1260-1290-1335 days of response to futurist interpretations of Daniel 12. So it talks about all the different time prophecies. We haven't gotten to the 1290 or the 1335. I said they were a little more minor. But the 1260 is definitely one that we have talked about in quite a different ways through Daniel and through the book of Revelation. This was written in the Journal of Interdisciplinary Graduate Research. And a couple great things in this article. But basically, I want you to see the history, the historical significance of 538 A.D., as a starting point for the 1260-year prophecy, the, the year 8538 also witnessed a significant historical development that would assist the papacy in its rise to medieval supremacy. The first expulsion of the Arian Ostrogoths from the city of Rome took place in this year, which was executed by Belisarius, a Roman Byzantine general who served under the pro-Catholic Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian. Just like I said, Justinian was the one who basically kind of officiated all of this. Rome and its bishop, which is the papacy, had been living under Ostrogothic control since AD 493, when the Ostrogothic king Theodoric the Great, who we read about previously, defeated the Heruli for control of Italy and settled his people on the Italian peninsula. Following his conquest of the Arian Vandals in AD 534, Belisarius invaded Italy and gained control of the city of Rome in December AD 536, after an Ostrogothic garrison withdrew from the city. The Ostrogoths placed the city under siege in February of AD 537, but through the resilience of Belisarius and his forces, the siege was broken 13 months later in March of AD 538. Although the city of Rome would be taken and retaken at least four more times by Ostrogothic and Roman Byzantine forces between AD 538 and AD 552, the breaking of its initial siege in AD 538 was the first liberation of the papacy from Arian rule and later enabled this power to fulfill Justinian's decrees of holding primary primacy over the Christian churches. So we'll get to this, but Justinian basically decreed that the Bishop of Rome is now basically the king of all the churches. He's the king of the church. He's the, he's the prime authority. And that was after these three powers were removed, which was the Heruli, the uh, Ostrogoths, and the Vandals. Because again, these nation states were all kind of competing with each other, and the papacy was definitely under these nations. Now, again, it's interesting how Daniel saw the horn, the little horn power, coming out of the beast, right? So it's under, and it plucked three horns out of the way for it to grow. Now, just imagine what that would look like and see how this is being fulfilled in history, how these powers that were controlling the papacy, or at least it, it had to pay submission to them, were removed, and then the papacy arose as this power, which is really just so fascinating how it all comes together. Now, zoom backwards a little bit, because we just talked about from 476 to 538 AD. There were some other things that were happening. In 508 AD, Clovis, who was king of the Franks, also converted to Christianity. And he set up a union of church and state too, who basically drove out paganism and, and became this fanatic of the church is the authority. And there's a good article on that that I want you to check out as well. Um, here we go. It, historical significance of 8508. As a starting point for the 1290 and 1335 year prophecies, the 8508 witnessed a significant historical development in relationship to the elevation of the medieval papacy. Despite having a pagan upbringing and an extensive network 
of Aryan Germanic kinsmen, the French King Clovis I, who reigned from 481 to 511, converted to Catholicism sometime prior to AD 508 through the influence of his Catholic wife, Clotilda, if I can pronounce it right, a Burgundian princess. After driving the Aryan Visigoths out of Gaul, which was France, through a victory over them near Poitiers in uh, late 507, Clovis marched to Tours in early 508, where he was named as honorary Roman consul and, as a second Constantine, assumed the role of defender of the Catholic faith. So he was really getting fanatical. He was essentially the first king of the post-Roman Western Europe to convert to Catholicism and lend his military power to the papacy. This development set a precedent for future European states to assist the papal power in a military way, thus ensuring that the Roman Catholic or the Roman Catholicism would become the dominant Christian faith in Western Europe. It's just all so fascinating. You had all these pieces started to come together. Justinian, you had Clovis, basically all these kings became copycats of Constantine and were probably guided by the same spirit, which is basically they saw this unification of church and state. And the Pope, by being the spiritual leader, he was able to control all of these states and powers. He didn't have his own military. This is the fascinating thing. And again, Daniel tells us this, not by his own power. Daniel 8, verse 24, not by his own power. And we know that the, the papacy never had its own military. We know the Jesuits are kind of like a you know special ops or propaganda wing of the papacy, but the, the Pope never had his own military. He wasn't like this giant empire, but he controlled through spirit, through spiritually and mentally all these empires and kings, which is just fascinating. And we can see that start to happen in history over these first couple centuries from, again, Constantine all the way through these various Roman empires. So, a couple... A couple other notes here. In 538 AD, the papacy was basically established by a decree from Justinian. Basically, the papacy was the supreme authority of the church. And we can see that in this article is, t- is titled 538 AD and the Transition from Pagan Roman for the from the Pagan Roman Empire to the Holy Roman Empire. Justinian's Metamorphosis from Chief of Staffs to Theologian. This is a paper written in the International Journal of Humanities and Social Sciences, Volume 7, Number 1, in January 2017. I'm just going to read you the abstract here so you can get an idea. The climate, again, just picture the climate that's happening and remember that history repeats itself. This is really what I want you to get from this. The years 538 AD became the turning point in the history of the Roman Empire, since so many aspects on political, administrative, and economical levels were already switched off that when Justinian declared himself to be a theologian, from this year and no longer a soldier, he crossed the barrier of his mandate between what is purely civil obligation and what is a religious obligation, similarly to Constantine before, and entered in competition with the papal function. And this role is evidence of Justinian's ongoing Caesaropapism. The quest for unification of the empire by unification of the church, the fever for church-building projects with his wife Theodora, the persecution of enemies of the church and heretics, now, heretics in this case were actually true believers. His disdain with the Sabbath, although his second name was Sabatini, isn't that ironic? His support for suppressing any eschatological fever in line with the church fathers and 
ecumenists, and yet trying to build the kingdom of God on earth. All this indicates the problems. The problem 538 was for the Roman Empire and the Catholic Church. Archaeological and historical origin, original sources of Justinian and contemporaries of Pope's biographer of Justinian and a commentator of Revelation are very revealing of these times and the shift or transition of what belonged to the Roman Empire handed over since 538 AD to the church and the papal function. The Code of Justinian was a persecuting instrument. Justinian upheld the supremacy of the papacy. He permitted through the Council of Orleans actions to be done on Sunday that constantly prohibited like like travel and preparation of food and cleaning in the house. So basically Sunday laws. In Novelle CXLIV, Justinian instituted a seventh-day Sabbath persecution. So if you rested on Saturday, which is the true seventh day, then you'd be persecuted. Just like Constantine. He changed the times and laws ad hoc as his Novelle XLVI and coins of 538 AD indicate. Private gatherings were persecuted. He had church manual laws. Justinian studied systematic theology on the nature of Christ, and wrote homiletical rules for preachers. He gave text-critical advice to Jews and condemned their doctrinal deviations. This theological lobby of the ruler of the once-mighty Roman Empire was to be taken over by a more theological competent power that would eventually lead to papal Caesarianism until the unsettling of this new agar aggrandizing paradigm in 1798 by Napoleon. So basically this would lead to the papacy for 1260 years. The prophetic embedding of the 1260 days as years, prophecies in both Daniel 7 and Revelation 12, definitely started in 538 AD, contrary to W. Spicer's suggestion 533 or 538 as two alternative dates or any other dates suggested by the scholars. And he goes on and so on. So what's the point of this? This is a very lengthy paper and you can definitely check it out if you want the detail, but the point is this, you started to have these fanatics from Constantine, which again, what spirit is guiding this? It's not the spirit of God that's telling them to diffuse political you know, union with church and basically persecute believers and, cre- and change times and laws. This is not the spirit that was guiding these people. But you had all these kings and emperors who wanted to be God. They wanted to be God, ultimately. They wanted to be the, the sovereign authority of morality and the sovereign authority over military and sovereign over, over everything, which is what God is. But they're trying to be gods on earth. All the Roman empires felt the same way, and, and the Pope is no different. And then the only difference is the Pope doesn't have his own military. He, he is powerful, but, but not by his own power. He manipulates and basically has political clout and spiritual clout. And so the point is, all these changes, Justinian, Constantine, Clovis, set the stage for this unification of church and state, where the papacy assumed control by b- being recognized as the chief of the church, the, the, the sole, you know, basically leader of the Catholic church. And because of that, he then be, had power basically over everything and everyone, and all these kings and empires and countries. And so all this happened in a very relatively short amount of time, and then basically the papacy ruled from that decree that Justinian had, where, again, there were Sunday lies attached to it, there was a decree that the Pope was the supreme, the Bishop of Rome was the leader of the Catholic Church, he acknowledged that, and so from then on to 1798, when the Pope was arrested, 
and the papacy was decreed an end. That's exactly 1260 years. It's fascinating how history works out. It really is. But again, it's it's the work of God, and we know that because prophecy is very specific. So in 1798, this is when the 1260-year time period ended. This is what John talks about with the two witnesses, with the woman running away from the dragon for 1260 years, with the first beast that has powers persecuting the saints for 1260 years. This is what Daniel talks about with 1260 years, with the little horn. I mean, it's all the same thing from different views. We know that there was atheism, the rise of atheism in the French Revolution, Luciferianism, this whole dialectic of left and right, communism eventually, secret societies. All these things were born out of the French Revolution. So go see that previous episode if you haven't, or listen to it. But I want to also read the historical significance of 1798, again, from that article that we were reading previously. As the termination point of the 1260 and 1290-year prophecies, the year 1798 also witnessed a significant historical event that virtually ended the medieval supremacy of papal Rome. Seeking to weaken papal interest in France during his rise to power, Napoleon Bonaparte ordered the annexation of Rome after a general betrothed to his sister was killed in a skirmish with pontifical troops in December of AD 1797. In February of 1798, the French army entered Rome, deposed the Pope as the head of state, pronounced the establishment of a Roman Republic, and plundered the Lateran Palace. This development seriously weakened papal political power in Europe, and the loss of power that would be completed with the surrender of the papal states by AD 1870. Buffondel observes that it is ironic that France helped to set up the papacy in power through the conversion of the dominance of Clovis. Remember, Clovis was the king of the Franks. Franks were in French. Or France, I should say. That's where France comes from, was the Franks. And yet also later removed the papacy from power through the dominance of Napoleon. So the French basically started, brought up the papacy, and they took him away, which is it's just very interesting. So you basically had this event happen where Napoleon disrupted the papal power. This this medieval, this long string of power the medieval pope, the papacy enjoyed, was interrupted through Napoleon. And Napoleon, the, the pope was arrested. Eventually, they had to give up all their territory, the papal states. And that was the wound. That was the mortal wound that seemed to have a mortal wound. Remember, the beast that John saw seemed to have a mortal wound. It seemed like it had a but it didn't actually have a mortal wound. And that wound was healed politically. Remember, again, the art of war. Remember the dialectics, problem, reaction, solution. In 1804, Napoleon crowns himself emperor. Let's look at the timeline here. In 1806, Napoleon restores religious freedom. And in 1808, Napoleon takes the Vatican states from the Vatican, basically basically takes the territories, like I had mentioned earlier. Now, Mazzini, Giuseppe Mazzini, attacks Rome in 1848, and Pope Pius IX is exiled. He loses all the papal states. And so you have this, from 1798 all through the 1850s, you have this, this string of defeats for the Pope or the papacy, I should say, where this mortal wound is just open, and it seems the papacy is done. It's over. But then in 1929, like I had mentioned earlier, you had the Lateran Pact, which is a very important thing to understand. And basically what happened is Mussolini declares political autonomy to the Vatican, and just Gaspari, the secretary cardinal, signs this treaty. And the treaty was titled Healing the Wound. Let's look at that for a second. 
This is in the San Francisco Chronicle, February 11th, 1929, the Lateran Treaty. And the quote is this from the San Francisco Chronicle. It says, The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. In affixing the autographs to the memorable document, Healing the Wound. The document was called Healing the Wound. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. So, this is, I mean, you can't get more obvious than this. This is definitely Bible prophecy fulfilling itself. The wound was healed, and people marveled after the beast. And they will marvel even more when the beast comes back in full power when the church and state unifies into one political religious world system that everybody base worship to. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. Again, we haven't gotten to the woman riding the beast. We are somewhere in between the mortal wound being healed and this final system being developed. We aren't in the image of the beast yet, but it's being developed as we speak. And again, we have two episodes dedicated to that that you'll see for sure without a doubt that the image of the beast is being developed. And that image of the beast will be a representation of this original papal system that had complete authority over morality and over political economic status of everything. So it basically had God-like authority, right? That's that's what it's, all this is about. It's always about the devil wanting to play God. But you had 131 years, basically, of, of this wound lasting from 1798 to 1929, where the papacy seemed like it was over, and then the wound was healed, and the treaty was called Healing the Wound. Isn't that, I mean, just... It's just fascinating to me how these things are reported in history, but nobody really understands these things because they're so focused on Israel. What's happening in Israel? Forget Israel. Look around you at the real Antichrist system. Put all this together. You had the two witnesses that were killed from the bottom from the beast that arose from the bottomless pit. What is the beast that arose from the bottomless pit? We know that's the woman that's riding the beast. The woman that's riding the beast, which is the final church state union. That killed the two witnesses. The two witnesses are the ones that we talked about a couple episodes ago that's representative for the Word of God that was prophesying and testifying during that 1260-year medieval papal rule where the Word was getting persecuted. The Bible was banned. People couldn't even understand it because it was in Latin. Sabbath keepers were persecuted. Genuine Christians were called heretics. You had the Inquisitions. You had you know all these crusades. You had all kinds of crazy things. And that was when the two witnesses were basically prophesying. Now, they were killed for three and a half years. That's when the Bible was completely banned in Europe following the French Revolution. And, you know, basically Bibles were burned. Atheism was now the the thing. And that happened for three and a half years. But then you had this resurgence in missions and missionary work. And that's how the two witnesses were resurrected. So the final system, the point that we got from the episode on the two witnesses... Again, the two witnesses of the same time period as the woman running away from the dragon, it's all the same thing. It's people getting persecuted. Sometimes it's from the Antichrist's vision, meaning you look at the beast and what it's doing. Sometimes it's from the believer's vision, the woman running away from the dragon, the two witnesses. It's just from different perspectives. It's the same events in history. But putting it all together, the, the beast system arose during the French Revolution. So if the two witnesses were killed in 1798, the word of God was killed when Bibles were declared illegal, Bibles were burned, atheism was, you know, supreme in Europe, 
And then three and a half years later, they were resurrected. But the point is this, if the system that came out of the bottomless pit came out in 1798, because that's what the that's when the Bibles were burned, that's the French Revolution, that's when the two witnesses were killed, then that system has been going on since 1798. That's a very important detail. That means that the dialectics of left versus right, communism versus conservatism, red versus blue, dark versus light, all these things happened in the French Revolution. All these things happened, began in the French Revolution. If those things killed the Word of God, then we identify that this beast, this woman riding the beast, actually started in 1798. It's not here. It's forming. It's forming slowly and slowly. It's forming through various things, politically and spiritually. And again, we know in 1929, the Lateran Pact was part of a big part of it. The wound was healed politically. The, pa- the papacy got its political power back. It was recognized. It's got its territories back. It's got the Vatican back. And of course, the final part of it is the spiritual healing, which is what's going to happen with all these other things like the charismatic movement, Protestants moving back into the mother church, Islam reunifying with the Catholic church. It sounds so crazy. I mean, look, we're living in crazy times. You have to open your mind if this sounds crazy to you and realize that these things are on the horizon. But all these things are going to be part of the spiritual healing of the wound. And when the full system comes into play, the woman riding the beast, that's when the kings of the earth will give their power and give their allegiance to the beast. The world will marvel after the beast. Remember, there's the image of the beast too. That's part of the situation. We're not there yet. We're not in the image of the beast. We're not in the woman riding the beast. But we're in transit. That's the point. This has been going on since the French Revolution this dialectic to push people to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right, and eventually it ping-pongs you up and up and up the Kabbalah tree until you get to the crowning moment, their, their crowning achievement. Do you know what it says on your dollar bill with the pyramid and the one eye? Novus order seclorum, new world order. But then underneath it says, he approves of our undertaking. Who is the he? Do you think he is the, the Yahweh, the God of the Bible? I don't think so. He is their God. It's Lucifer, their savior, the one that brings them light. But in reality, it's total darkness because he's blinded them. He's blinded. That's what the Bible says. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so put all this together. Okay, some final thoughts for you. The statue and the beast of Daniel all categorize the same sequence of empires and events. It's basically Babylon. And it goes through these iterations where more things are added and changed and is degrading over time until you have this final system of the papacy where it's this unification of church and state. John's beasts continue what Daniel left off a little more generally, and they add more color and detail. John talks about the first beast, which is, again, akin to all the previous beasts. It's this conglomerate, which the papacy is, and it rules for 1260 years, which the papacy did. And then it seems to have a mortal wound, which the papacy did. I mean, it's all talking about the papacy. There is no power in history that matches all these things we've talked about, sitting on seven hills. Are you kidding me? There's th- That alone should be your dead giveaway of who this is talking about. Now, again, this papacy appeared to have a mortal wound, and the, the French Revolution was instigated by the Jesuits. The Jesuits are the dark, the papacy is the light. In the end, they all serve the same goal. We read The Art of War, where you had the sovereign and then the general. The general's kind of his own little sovereign. He follows the sovereign's orders, which is the pope. 
and but he follows his own orders when he thinks it's convenient. So you have these two heads of the snake that are kind of fighting with each other, but there's still one snake. That's what's really going on here. And if you remember, the art of war was translated for the first time into French a few years before the French Revolution and a few years before the Jesuits were banned. There's no book that any Jesuit publishes that the, Je- the, the Jesuit general doesn't approve. So do the math and figure out what happened. I don't think Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War in 400 BC or whatever they tell you. This is nonsense. If you know anything about history and, and how much fabricated stuff there is in history, this is definitely one of them. The, the Art of War was most certainly written by the Jesuits. And again, it was them playing their hand because that's what they do. They give it to you on face value so that you accept it and then they do it. And it's very interesting, the timing of all those things, I think. But nevertheless, these things were designed to bring people back to the Mother Church. These dialectics of left versus right, up versus down, dark versus light, it's all designed to push people to and fro and move the agenda along. And another thing we want to mention is that John mentions this helping power that's going to look like a lamb, which is Christianity, but speak like a dragon, which is satanic. John mentions this second beast that comes and helps the first beast to basically get back in its former glory. Now, this second beast acts like a false prophet. It's not an individual. It is a beast. It's a kingdom. It's a power. But this political power deceives the world in creating a representation, meaning a representative government, because a beast is a power, so a representation should be a government. It's a system that will mimic or mirror or represent the original system that the beast had, the political, religio-spiritual, supreme authority over all things that that first beast had. This is what this second political power will do. And this second political power looks like a lamb, meaning it looks Christian, but it speaks, meaning legislates, like a dragon. Now, there's no other political power that has fulfills all these things other than the United States. The United States come up, came up around this French Revolution. Everybody thinks the United States is a Christian nation, when in reality, it's, it's actually not. The founding fathers were not Christians. They were very much against Christianity. They were Luciferian. They were secret society members. If you know George Washington's monument, it says Freemason above first president. So which one is priority? Well, you know which one is priority because that's the one that's listed first. So ultimately, America fits the bill because it is the false prophet. Now, out of America, you had all kinds of things, which we will cover in great detail. You had the charismatic movement. You had New Age. You have progressive Christianity. You have all these different things that have come out of America. False signs and wonders, the chosen, the passion of the Christ, Hollywood. All these things to bring people back into the mother church. It is an image it's a representation. There is no unification of church and state, or I should say, there's no separation of church and state in America. It's it's getting closer and closer and closer to being officially no more separation. Now, we have that on paper, but in reality, it's not. It hasn't been separated for a very long time. And that's by design. Again, the dialectic of the separation between church and state was created on purpose so that it would lead to unification of church and state. They work in duality and contrast all the time. America is the only power, world power, that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. It legislates, 
very differently than what it looks like. And it has served the interests of the first beast, and it will continue to serve the interests. And I will, again, I'll document all this. This is just very bird's eye view that we're looking at. But John mentions this power, and together they will create this final system, which is the woman riding the beast, which is Revelation 17, which is what we covered, Mystery Babylon. So I hope that you have learned to look for powers and systems rather than for individuals and all this fleshly, worldly things that dispensationalism is teaching people these days. People think that there's an antichrist that's going to walk into a physical temple and proclaim himself to be God, and there's a seven-year tribulation. We have been in tribulation for 2,000 years. If Christians getting crucified and fed to lions doesn't count as tribulation, then I don't know what counts as tribulation. People have been persecuted for the last 2,000 years. We've been in tribulation since the cross. There is no seven-year tribulation. There will be a mark of the beast. There will be all these things, a final church-state union. But if you're looking with fleshly eyes at Israel, you will be deceived that when that final church-state union arrives, you're going to think it's a good thing. You're going to think we've won, that possibly even Jesus is here, that we need to worship him for a thousand years on earth in Jerusalem when in reality it will be the greatest deception of all time. And Jesus warned us that the deception will be so great that even the elect would be fooled if it were possible. So imagine how great that deception will be. I think it's a very good candidate that Satan will masquerade as a false Christ. And they are building the stage for that through the unification of religions, through all these false signs and wonders, through the ecumenism and all these things we've been talking about. It's, it's really pretty crazy. But thank God that we get to learn these things, that we have the ability to share information so rapidly and learn things. Try to study and and show yourself approved because look, you're living in the last days. This is the 11th hour. So I hope this has been helpful for you. I hope it's given you some tools to, to not be deceived. Again, it's not about knowing everything, but know enough to show yourself approved, to, to not be deceived, to not be fooled by these things that are coming down the horizon. And next week, we will look at all the teachings of the Catholic Church. We're going to look at all the teachings of Mystery Babylon and why exactly it is the mother of abominations, because it is. It truly is. And so I hope you tune in. Today was more from the political historical aspect, which again is very clear who the Mystery Babylon is. If you know your history, if you study even just a cursory level of history, you know who Mystery Babylon is, and therefore all the other beasts, what they're pointing to. But next week, we'll look at all the specific teachings of Mystery Babylon and expose her even more. Until then, I hope you have a good rest of your day, and God bless.